Can we turn again to Hebrews, please? Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 from verse 5. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownedest him with glory and honour, and did set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honour, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again I will put my trust in him, and again behold I and the children which God hath given me. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who, through fear of death, were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily, he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it behoved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered, being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Now we thank the Lord for his precious word, and we know that he always blesses the reading of it. This morning we were looking at a phrase from chapter 1. And verse 4, better than the angels, better than the angels. We have a similar but a contrasting phrase here in chapter 2 and verse 9, lower than the angels, lower than the angels. And that's really what we want to think about together uh, this afternoon. If in the phrase in chapter 1, 
better than the angels, that would remind us of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this one, lower than the angels, that would bring before us the humanity of our blessed Lord Jesus, that he really did become a man. In this chapter where we've read together uh, this afternoon, there are three times that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is explicitly stated to have become uh, a human being, to have become a real man. It's stated in different terms each time, but it's unmistakable that that's what is being referred to. The first one there, uh, as I said in verse 9, lower than the angels. May it a little lower than the angels. The next one's at the beginning of verse 14. For as much as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. So not only did he become lower than the angels, but it's expressed here now that he partook of flesh and blood. And then the third one is in verse 17. And all things that behoved him to be made like unto his brethren. Again, speaking of him becoming a man. Now, why? Well, in those three references, in this passage, we're really given three reasons why the Lord Jesus Christ became a man. Why he came and was born and lived in this world. And each is related to the purposes of God. So we're having here in this passage threefold reason why the Lord Jesus Christ became a man for the fulfillment of the purposes of God. First of all then, in verses 5 to 9, we see there that he became a man to fulfill God's purposes for this world. Verses 5 to nine. Second, he became a man to fulfill God's purposes for his son. Verses 10 to 15. God has great purposes for this world. He has great purposes for his son. And that those purposes might be fulfilled, he had to become a man. But not only does God have great purposes for this world and great purposes for his son, praise God, he has great purposes for us. And that's what we have at the end of the chapter in verses 16 to 18. And that's what we're going to look at for just the next half hour uh, or so. God has purposes for this world. We thought this morning about the creation and how that things didn't come about by accident, not at all. Don't believe those people either too who would try to tell you that this world is just moving on, careering on into oblivion, that everything will gradually become more and more disordered and soon there will be an homogenous mass of everything that is just nothing to it at all. No, God has a glorious purpose for this world. The world is referred to in verse 5 as the world to come. That's not the thought of the age to come, although it would include that. It's actually the word world that means this actual world in which we live. We sometimes call it the habitable world. This very place we're in at present. We saw last time this morning that uh, it will, the whole heavens and the earth will be dissolved. But before that takes place, God has a tremendous purpose for this world. And what is that purpose? Well, there is to be a glorious reign. There is to be a glorious age that is to come. And who is going to be 
in dominion. Because God always has order. God always has rule. And God will have dominion in the world to come. But who is going to be in charge, as it were? Who is going to have dominion? Question. Angels? Well, we get the answer in verse 5. For unto angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. Who then is going to have dominion in this world to come? Well, we get the answer in the next verse. One in a certain place testified. I love the way he says that. He's quoting from Psalm 8. He's actually quoting David, but he doesn't mention David's name. Why does he do that? Of course, the writer, whoever he was, he knows very well that it was David that wrote this. But he doesn't mention David's name. Why? Because he's not drawing attention to the prophets. He's drawing attention to God, as we saw at the beginning of chapter 1 and verse 1. And so he puts it one in a certain place, like a very general sort of a way. It's not so matter who is saying it so much as the matter. It's what is the subject and what is he saying? What is man that thou art mindful of him? In other words, it is man who is to have dominion in the world to come. This glorious future for this world is to be invested in under the authority of a man. You see, we saw that uh, the Lord Jesus is greater than angels. We saw that in chapter 1. But that doesn't in any way minimize the, the great exalted status that angels have. It is a great, tremendous position that they have. And the psalmist there and quoted here by the writer to the Hebrews, is making clear that man is actually a very dignified being. We know very well that man doesn't, hasn't come evolved from some uh, tiny one-cell organism or anything. Like that. No, he has been placed in a position of great dignity. And the writer, the psalmist, he marvels that God would even take man into his mind, that he would even visit him, that he would even come to look at him with a view uh, to blessing him. And so he's pointing out that dominion in this coming world, it is to be in a man. Now the question of course is, which man? Well, there is an obvious candidate, isn't there? The first man, Adam. Because that who is who Psalm 8 is primarily speaking of. What is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man, his descendants, that thou visitest him. Is Adam going to be the one in whom God invests authority in the coming world future for this world? Well, what does he say about him? Three things, really, he says about him. First of all, verse 7, thou madest him a little lower than the angels. If you were to take the whole hierarchy of God's creation from top to bottom, where you have angels, what is next down in the order? It is man. There's nothing in between. Those tremendous beings that God has made, the most dignified position next to them, it is man. Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Second thing, he says about man, Thou crownest him with glory and honor. And certainly that great glory and honor was given to man, was given to Adam. He really 
was a splendid creature from the hands of God, made a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor. Third thing about him, verse 7 and verse 8, thou didst set him over the works of thy hands, thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. That's really saying two sides of the same thing, over and under. Man was placed over all things. All things were placed in subjection under him. So three things said of Adam. This potential candidate to be the ruler in the world that is to come. Made a little lower than the angels. Crowned with glory and honor. Made to have dominion over the works of thy hands. All things in subjection under him. Everything he says, without exception, verse 8, put in subjection under him. Is that the end of the story? No, because we see a big but at the end of verse 8. But now we see not yet all things put under him. Something has gone wrong somewhere, evidently. When we read at the beginning of Genesis, these three things were true of Adam. But obviously, what the writer is pointing out for us is that we don't see it that way now. Why? Because Adam sinned. Adam failed. Adam fell. And so, we look all around us and we see that all things are not now under man. Oh yes, man still is a great dignity. No doubt about that. There is still that which man has that is greater than anything else in the creation in this world. But man does not have universal dominion. Man, for example, cannot stand out in front of a lion and expect to survive. For example, man has fallen and so we see not yet all things put under him. Man, Adam. He cannot fulfill God's purposes for dominion to man in a future day. What is the solution? Not the first man, but the second man. Not the first man, Adam, but the last Adam. The writer says, we see not all things put under him, but we see Jesus. Here is now the second man. Here is the last Adam. And the three things that are said concerning Adam are paralleled for the Lord Jesus Christ. We see Jesus. What was the first of the three things about Adam? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. What does it say about the Lord Jesus? We see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. Now, how do we take that? Well, I'll tell you what I believe in this. It is possible that that could be rendered made a, for a little while lower than the angels. And there is a sense, of course, in which that is true, even in the light of what we've seen in uh, chapter 1. The problem I have with that interpretation is it would be making what we have of the Lord Jesus in verse 9 different from what we have of Adam in verse 7. It wasn't just that Adam was made for a little while lower than the angels. I take it the thought there is that he was made of a lower order than the angels. 
And I have no problem whatsoever in taking it in the same way for the Lord Jesus Christ. In becoming a man, he voluntarily became part of that which is inherently a lower order than the angels. But that does not in any way affect his inherent uh, superiority to the angels. The writers made that very clear already in chapter 1. You couldn't read chapter 1 and think that the Lord Jesus became inferior, but no, he did in humility, in grace, voluntarily become part of humanity, which is of a lower order than the angels, without ceasing to be everything that he was before. When was that fulfilled? That was fulfilled in the past. It was fulfilled when he became a man. He became a real person, and so therefore, in that sense, a little lower than the angels. First thing, out of the three, the Lord Jesus has fulfilled that. Why did he become a little lower than the angels? Well, I take it the first part of verse 9 and the last part go together. We see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. What was the second thing about Adam? Verse 8, 7. Thou crownedest him with glory and honor. What do we see for the Lord Jesus Christ? Verse 9. For the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. I take it if you were to really put that in brackets. For the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. The main clause, the main phrase of of verse 9. We see Jesus made a little lower than the angels, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. And because of the suffering of death, on account of the suffering of death, he has been crowned with glory and honor. And I know that many would take the glory and honor to refer to when he was on earth. And again, in a sense, that's true, because he certainly wasn't any less glorious than Adam was when he was here on this earth. The glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But in the context, I take it that that's speaking of his present exalted glory and honor in heaven. So now, past incarnation, he became lower than the angels. Present, crowned with glory and honor. Two of the three things regarding Adam are said to be fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. What was the third thing concerning Adam? Thou didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. What about the Lord Jesus? We see not yet all things put under him. What does that mean? Well, it means the third thing has not yet been fulfilled. But you notice he says not yet, which means, of course, that it is going to be fulfilled. It's only a matter of time. So the Lord Jesus Christ passed, became lower than the angels, present, crowned with glory and honor, and in a future all things will be put in subjection under him. It is sure to happen. God has his purposes for this world. And it's not going to be under the subjection of angels. It's going to be under the subjection of a man. And it's not going to be under the subjection of a man who fell. It's going to be under the subjection of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in order that this world could be under a man, the Lord Jesus Christ, he had to become 
a man. One reason why he became lower than the angels. It was so that God could ensure, or would ensure, that this great future for this world would be under the control of a man. What about the second thing? Verses 10 to 15. By the way, these three points, they all link together. You notice that verse 10 begins the word for. So although it's changing to a slightly different subject, it's all related. It's all related together. It goes together. It became him. It was fitting for him. It was suitable for him. Who is the him in verse 10? It's God. For whom are all things? All things are there uh, through him. All things are for him. They're all by him. God is the one who has brought all about. All things exist for the glory of God. God had a desire. God wanted to do something for his son. It's there at the end of verse 10. To make the captain of their salvation perfect. God had purposes for his son as well. He wanted to make his son perfect. Likely a lot of you are saying, ouch, I don't like the sound of that. Is the Lord Jesus Christ not already perfect? Well, of course he is. Totally, fully, completely, inherently in himself. But as far as the purposes of God for his son were concerned, there was something that needed to be brought about to fulfill God's purposes for his son. So it's not a question of any deficiency in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not that there was some imperfection or something lacking in him that needed to be made right. But God had a great purpose for his son that needed to be brought about and it could only be brought about by him becoming a man. How is that? Well, he explains it. The writer, he explains it for us here. Verse 10, right in the middle there. In bringing many sons unto glory. We saw in chapter 1 that God has one unique son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But God desired that he would have many sons. There is a glory that is uniquely belonging to the Lord Jesus Christ. But God had the desire that many would share in that glory. That was what would bring God's purpose for his son to completion. That he wouldn't be alone in glory. That he would have many others with him glorified. And that was how God was going to make the captain of salvation perfect. It's brought very clearly there. Sons, bringing many sons, verse 10, unto glory. Verse 11, looking from the Lord Jesus Christ's perspective, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Brothers. What does it mean for both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one? Well, obviously he that sanctifieth is the Lord Jesus Christ. And they that are sanctified, that's us, believers in the Lord Jesus. So in what sense are we all of one? Well, I can only suggest to you that the next clause explains it. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. In other words, God is his father and God is our father. We who are saved. 
And so in that sense, he can call us brethren. Now, please, again, God is his father in a different way than he is from ours. He's uniquely his father, as the Lord Jesus is the unique eternal son. And yet we are sons of God who are saved. God is our father, and God is the father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what blessed truth, the Lord Jesus is not ashamed to call us brethren. What a dignity, what a status is ours through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, please, that doesn't mean that we go around saying the Lord Jesus is our brother. It's nothing like that. Please, we need to be reverent. We need to be clear. I remember hearing once somebody calling the Lord Jesus our big brother. That is just so jarring to the ears. The fact that the Lord Jesus in love and grace and goodness to us is not ashamed to call us brethren, does not give us the right to treat him in an irreverent way and fair to him as brother. He is our Lord. He is our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we treat him and we speak of him with the dignity that he deserves. But from his perspective, He's not ashamed to call us brethren. And you see again, the Old Testament quotes, they're not just quite as prominent here as they were in chapter 1, but he brings in three quotes from the Old Testament to show that relationship from Psalm 22 in verse 11. Sorry, verse 12. I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church, it's really the congregation, will I sing praise unto thee. Identifying himself with the brethren. So much even that he's declaring God's name to them. That he's joining with them in their praise to God. Verse 13. I will put my trust in him. Identifying with his brethren in trusting in God. Behold, I and the children which God hath given me from Isaiah chapter 8. Really again, a spiritualizing of an actual family in the Old Testament. It's all showing the relationship that believers in the Lord Jesus have to God as the sons of God, as the children of God, and the Lord Jesus Christ. He would be the one who would be responsible for making it that we, poor, lost, guilty sinners, would be brought unto glory. How could that be brought about? How could that take place? Verse 10. To make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. He must suffer if that is going to happen. If you and I are going to be brought to glory, if we are going to be children of God, sons of God, if he's going to be able to call us his brethren, then he needed to suffer. And what must happen if he was to suffer? He had to become a man. That's what we have in verse 14. For as much then as the children, you and I, are partakers, sharers in flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. He became a man. You and I are all sharers in flesh and blood. We didn't choose to. None of us here with no choice about it whatsoever. We had nothing to do with it, and yet we involuntarily became partakers, sharers in flesh and blood. The Lord Jesus Christ, he became a partaker in flesh and blood, but not passively, not without any choice. He actively himself, voluntarily took part of the same. Why? Verse 14 again, that through death... He might destroy him that had the part of death that is the devil and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime 
subject to bondage. He had to become a man so that he could die. You see the emphasis on death there? Death to deliver us who through fear of death we're all our lifetime subject to bondage. Our brother has been speaking this afternoon of people who are living at the very edge of death. And that the fact that they no doubt fear death and mankind in general fears death. It's not something that people look forward to. It's not people, something that people want. And generally speaking, no matter how brash, no matter how bold they may be, at the end of the day, there's a fear that is there of death. And that fear of death allows Satan to hold people in bondage. You and I have deliverance from that. We don't fear to die. Any of us that are saved today, if we were to die tonight, we don't have any fear. Why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ, what he has done at Calvary. There he went to Calvary. There he died. There he overcame Satan, who held people in bondage, in slavery to death. And he granted deliverance to us who have trusted him as Savior. Through death, he might destroy him that had the power of death and deliver those who were in fear of death. That could only happen if he became a man. He voluntarily became a person not only to fulfill God's glorious purposes for this world, he did it to fulfill God's glorious purposes for himself. Because by that, what did he become? Lovely phrase here in verse 10. The captain of our salvation. That's a, that's, a, that's a lovely word, captain. It's not too often in the, in, the, in the scriptures, but it's there again in Hebrews chapter 12. Looking on to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. The pioneer. The one that goes before. It's translated prince a couple of times. The prince of life in the book of the Acts. You see, what has he done? He is the one who has destroyed Satan, who has disannulled his power, who has defeated him at Calvary, and he is the one who is leading many sons, you and I included, unto glory. And in that way, he is and will be perfected. I repeat again, because I don't want to be misunderstood, not any imperfection in himself, but to complete God's purposes for him in having many share his glory. He had to become a man. He had to suffer. He had to die. And is it so? We shall be like thy son. Is this the grace which he for us has won? Father of glory, thought beyond all thought, in glory to his own blessed likeness brought. O Jesus, Lord, who loved us like to thee, fruit of thy work with thee to there to see, thy glory, Lord, while endless ages roll, thy saints, the price and travail of thy soul. Finally, verses 16 to 18, he became a man to fulfill God's purposes for us. Again, you see, there's the connection. Just as there was a four linking verse 9 with verse 10, there's a four linking verse 15 with verse 16. We're not talking about three discrete, separate things that have no connection to one another, no. We've already seen quite a bit about God's purposes for us in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ into this world. We've already seen that uh, future thing, 
that we would be like him and with him in glory. We've already seen the past thing, that he would die, and that's there again in verse 17, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, that he might go to the cross and die, and thereby the work that he did upon the cross, ensure that God's claims were met, ensure that God was satisfied that the issue of sin had been fully dealt with, that enabled God to come out in mercy, as Paul puts it to the Romans, that God might be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. But it's not so much the past aspect of delivering us through his death that's in view in these last few verses. It's not so much the future thing of us being with him in glory. It's actually his purposes for us in the present that are brought before us here. The beginning of this section in verse 5 It's indicated that the uh, administration of the world to come is not in the hands of angels. Now, at the end of this section, we see something else that's not in angels, and that is God laying hold on on those that he is to bless. That's what we have there in verse 16. You notice there in, in the authorized version, him, the nature of is in italics, and then the other him is also in italics. So really, it is for verily he took, he takes not hold on angels. It's actually a present tense there. But he takes on the seed of Abraham. In other words, the one that the God has purposed to bless, it's not actually angels, it is the seed of Abraham. Now, whether that's Abraham's literal seed or his spiritual seed, those who believe in him, does not matter very much because the point is it's the human beings that are in view here. God has not led hold on angels to bless them. He's led hold, he's laying hold, he's taking hold of human beings. And I take it that's what is the sense there, because the next word is wherefore. Wherefore in all things it behoved him to be made like unto his brethren. In other words, since God is taking on human beings to bless them, then it's necessary that the Lord Jesus Christ would become a human being, that he would be like unto his brethren. Why? That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Merciful. That would primarily look towards us. Faithful. That would primarily look towards God. He is both. How would him becoming a man help him to be a merciful and faithful high priest? Well, we get the answer in verse 18. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Say, how can that be? Is the Lord Jesus only able to help us in our testings, help us in our trials, because he has been here? God has all power. God has all strength. God can can help us. Sure he can. But you see, there's something that the Lord Jesus Christ is able to do because he was here, and that is he's able to have, not only to help us, but to have sympathy with us in the situation that we are in. And that is a key feature of what was needed in the high priest, was that he was to be able to have a sympathy. I take it that's one reason why Aaron was the high priest, not Moses. Aaron suffered with his people in Egypt in a way that Moses never did. And we have a high priest who has been here, who has come 
into this world who is a real man. And so he's able to function fully and completely as a high priest to help us in every trial, in every testing, because he himself has suffered being tempted. Not tempted to sin. The writer will make that clear in future uh, chapters. But the whole thought of testing, the whole thought of trials, the whole thought of difficulty, and all those things, he has suffered. He has been tested. And so he is able to succor. He's able to run to the aid of you and of me when we go through trials in this world. I wonder what does that mean to you uh, this afternoon? I would suggest, I can only speak from my own experience, that the thought of the Lord Jesus Christ as a merciful, faithful high priest, able to succor those who are in trials, those who are being tested, is generally speaking, now there's many, many exceptions, many exceptions, but generally speaking, the older you are today, the more meaningful that is to you. Young people, able to run around, able to play. The future looks bright. The years stretch ahead. Maybe it doesn't just sometimes mean quite so much to you. But when the disappointments of life come in, when the illnesses come in, when death and bereavement come in, when it starts to be that you have more friends in heaven than you have here on earth, when you see maybe families not responding to the message of the gospel, when you see difficulties in the home and sad breakups in marriage and all that sort of thing, then the more and more and more glad you come that we have a merciful and faithful high priest who has experienced every trial, every testing of life, and to know that there's one who has sympathy with you, one who understands, one who is your great high priest who is able to succor and to comfort you in this testing. If that's not real to you as yet, please be assured that if the Lord doesn't come soon, and you remain in this world, it will become increasingly a blessing and encouragement to you as you go on in this world. We thank God the Lord Jesus became a man. Became a man to fulfill God's purposes for this world. Became a man to fulfill God's purposes for him. Became a man to fulfill God's purposes for us. To deliver us from Satan, from death. To be our high priest, to succor us from day to day as we live in this world. And ultimately, to present us to be with him together in glory. We thank God the Lord Jesus became lower than the angels. May the Lord bless his word. Good to be here with you. I see a lot of 